Jane Lowe on site here at the Vocal Hotel in Orchard Road, the shopping district here in Singapore, at the SingCon 2023, and I believe it's uh, probably the first cybersecurity conference in Singapore for the year 2023. And I'm very privileged and very pleased to have Dave Lewis, who is the uh, Global Advisory CISO with Cisco. Correct. Right. Uh, and he's going to be sharing with us his highlights from his keynote presentation today, which is titled Resilient Security Versus the Meteors, yes. if I get the title right. Right. So thank you very much, Dave, for your time today. Thank you for having me. All right. Okay. So Dave, um, I thought that we can start off with a quick intro, right, hmm. uh, about yourself and your role. Um, I think many people know about what a CISO is, but a Global Advisory CISO, what, what, what is that? So that, that's a different creation, um, which I was very fortunate to start in my previous job where I was hired on and I was told to do what I do. And he was, my boss said, you'll tell me when to stop. He never told me when to stop. And I created this role, which uh, I was very fortunate that my boss, Wendy Nather, uh, who's now at Cisco, she hired me away from there uh, to be part of Duo Security. And I was there for a while before we were acquired by Cisco. And this is a role where... I take the lessons learned of all the mistakes I've made throughout my career and be able to share them with a wider audience. So hopefully that'll make things easier for them in their careers and give them some actionable takeaways as well. Okay, so talking about lessons learned, right? Um, and looking at the title of your talk, Resilient uh, Security. So I think a lot of people will say, oh right, you know, uh, if we look at the decade or so of the lessons that we learned from all the hacks that we've seen, right, Stuxnet mm. and Ukraine 2015, 2016, WannaCry, which you also talked about in yep. your presentation, uh, not Petya, supply chain attacks, and then ransomware, and then the latest Ukraine um, uh, conflict and cyber attacks, plus all the best uh, practices, standards that we get from governments, industry bodies, professional um, consultancies. Are you saying that we still have a lot of room to grow? Yeah, we do. And this is a hard one opinion because I, I was in the trenches for 20 years before I joined a vendor. So I have been through everything that folks have been through in their defending of an environment, and I've seen it all. So I, I know that it is not a case of throwing people under the bus, but helping them understand that you know, just because you bought a certain widget or you have attended a certain class, you, that's not enough. It is a continuous basis that you have to go through and be iterating through how you can reduce the risk in your organizations and making sure that you're building out a resilient environment and that's sustainable mm -hmm. under an attack. Because the attackers are not going to give up anytime soon. It's gone from being a case of uh, attackers doing it for fun right. to now being you know, a multi-million dollar business for them. Right, okay. It's not about money as well. It's also about uh, nation-state sponsored attacks as well. Yes, and I find that the ones that are financially motivated tend to be far more technically savvy mm. than the nation-state. The nation-states are persistent. I'll give them that. But you know, the ones that seem to have the biggest impact historically, um, to my way of looking at it, have been the ones with financial motivation. Right. Um, okay. With the exception, of course, of uh, the solar winds incident, that mm -hmm. was uh, that was quite bad. And the, the thing is, I'm not saying that as any detriment to solar winds. It literally is a case of that could happen to any organization. Mm -hmm. That's why we have to be constantly vigilant. Okay. Right. Um, yes. So your talk, your presentation, talk about or touch on a few topics: uh, trust, privacy, and mm -hmm. also how we should learn to manage change better yes. to be more resilient. Right. So I thought we could uh, uh, talk about these topics under three sort of questions that you raise in your synopsis of your talk. So the three questions uh, you pose in your, your synopsis is what more could go wrong, mm -hmm. right? And then the second question you raise is, you know, whether we should consider or explore how we have approached globalization, mm -hmm. uh, of course, in a cybersecurity context. 
And then the third question is whether, you know, what our plans are if we unplug from the world. Yep. So if we could look at those three questions and if we could uh, start with, you know, uh, globalization, whether we should explore or retreat from the way that we have approached um, globalization historically, and I think also bringing up the topic of uh, solar winds, right? And many people will say, yes, supply chain attacks, of course, we, you know, we should rethink about how we uh, have this over-reliance on very global suppliers mm -hmm. to reduce that chance of uh, those kind of attacks happening. So your thoughts on this uh, globalization sort of uh, um, from a cybersecurity <coughs> point of view? Uh, this has been a long time coming. And when I look back to, I did my first supply chain security talk in 2013. Mm. And I remember at the time, people were saying, oh, it's, you know, why are we having this conversation? I never imagined it would take off the way it has, where it is a significant exposure for pretty much any organization on the planet. So we have moved to uh, cloud-based iterations for everything uh, from human resources to code repositories, and it just really has extended the targets of opportunity for the attackers. Yes. So we have to make sure that what we were once doing of protecting four walls uh, has expanded to an unfathomable number of walls, mm -hmm. uh, for want of a better term, and we have to change the way we are approaching security. So a lot of security practitioners that were you know, of my similar vintage had a certain way of approaching the world, and I, I've been very fortunate that I've been dissuaded of that notion over time uh, and experience that we have to make sure that we're changing the way we're approaching because while we're doing all of these interconnects, we have to make sure that we are not outpacing security because that will expose us to undue harm. Mm -hmm. And I think that while it is a fantastic idea to be more heavily interconnected around the planet, we have to have also have that fallback position of what happens in the event of some global catastrophe, mm -hmm. um, be it either kinetic warfare or a natural disaster, something that might precipitate the need to cut off a country from the rest of the world. Right. And that is a fantastic notion in of itself. It is also a Herculean task for most countries. I, I obviously, there are certain exceptions. Um, <laughs> right, of course, Singapore, right? Exactly. And, and that's something I've been keenly aware of uh, since before my time at Cisco, mm -hmm. um, that this was a project that has been ongoing for many, many years. And that's no small feat. And it is fantastic to see that has you know, grown over time. And we have to make sure that when we're using this as an example, that is something that can be replicated for other parts of the world. So that Canada has the ability to do that, the mm -hmm. United States has the ability to do that, China has the ability to do that, like in order to re, you know, survive whatever happens to come down the pipe. And it's not a case of saying simply kinetic warfare. It could be a natural disaster. Because if we have over-reliance on multiple different uh, platforms that are in other countries, mm -hmm. there is that real probability that if there is a horrible event, whatever it happens to be, we may lose access to that. So we have to figure out how we can continue to operate. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, it's a little bit tired to use the pandemic as an example, but that is an example where we were, had our lives upended in a very short space of time. Mm -hmm. And we had to change the way we were approaching um, life in general. Right. So talk, you, you touch on the point uh, very briefly about um, how uh, critical infrastructure could possibly go wrong if mm -hmm. one of these um, uh, nodes right, uh, is exposed to a cyber attack and it can quickly spread as a result of you know, our over-reliance on certain uh, common third parties. Mm -hmm. right? um, so talking about critical infrastructure and also talking about, you know, also a point that you brought up in your presentation earlier, zero trust, right? Mm -hmm. So this is also perhaps a concept that has been talked 
about quite for quite some time. Yes. So where are we now in terms of zero trust and in terms of addressing this um, as a con countermeasure, right, to mm. globalization and also to allow us to unplug digitally? Yeah, so critical infrastructure is something that's near and dear to my heart because I spent nine years that's in power right. systems um, and I learned the hard way what can go wrong. So the blackout in 2003 uh, took out most of the eastern seaboard in the United States. And there were two uh, interties that were offline for maintenance that day. Mm -hmm. And if they had been online, that the, the blackout could have been so much worse than it was. So it's just by virtue of having those interconnects, and there was not a cohesive way to shut them down. It was just blind luck that they weren't online at that point. Um, we want to make sure that there are you know systems in place to be able to address in short order if something critical is happening, like we saw with the blackout in 2003, um, that we can address it quickly. Yep. So at one point, uh, the entire power grid for um, the eastern seaboard of the United States and Canada was being held up for four minutes by the province of Ontario. Mm -hmm. So for four minutes, it actually carried all the power for all that until it ultimately gave way. And that wasn't a cyber attack. That was a, oh, look what just went horribly wrong moment. And it was a cascade failure. And I'm less concerned about the cyber attack in that sort of scenario than I am of the whoops factor. You know, what happens if this particular ap application fails? And then is there a domino effect that will mm -hmm. cascade out from there? Um, you know, cyber attack is always a clear and present danger that we have to be you know, cognizant of. But most times when things go horribly wrong, it's not because of an overt act. It is because of an interconnect with systems that are deprecated or an application that was promoted into production mm -hmm. that wasn't fully vetted. Mm -hmm. uh, I, saw, I saw an application once that took out an entire banking site in North America for several days because somebody put a semicolon in the wrong place in the code. <laughs> right, so I think we all have that kind of experience when we are doing some programming in it, our school days. Exactly. Thankfully, my <laughs> errors happened in the school days. But. Um, it, it's just that is what has uh, more of a concern for me than anything because a lot of organizations accumulate the security debt and critical infrastructure is no stranger to this right. because a lot of the devices that are deployed in the field in some cases won't ever get touched mm -hmm. for 30 or 40 years mm -hmm. and if something goes wrong with them in some cases it's months before you can get That's a replacement right. part mm -hmm. so the stakes are far higher there mm -hmm. and we want to make sure that when we're approaching cybersecurity for critical infrastructure that we are being cognizant of that and it's not a case of just patch it that, that's never a, a solution um, we have to make sure that we're doing regression testing make sure that it's actually going to work as advertised because this accumulated security mm -hmm. debt can cause far more harm than anything uh, ultimately. Right. And I think a lot of us would say, right, you know, cybersecurity at the end of the day is about risk management, right? Yeah, it's about um, prioritizing your risk, agreeing on what are the top threats or rather risk, and having visibility and, you know, having that risk register, having accountability, responsibility, and of course, I guess, a zero trust sort of concept. And I think each of these uh, topics probably require maybe, you know, a couple of hours of discussion. Oh, right? easily, yeah. <laughs> and so with zero trust, it is about fundamentally risk reduction. And it's an iterative process that there is no end state with zero trust. Um, and there's not a case of buying a box with blinky lights, plugging in your network and everything's done. That's not the way no, it's ever going to work. Right. Uh, unfortunately, some people will try to convince you of that. It is really about an iterative process, reducing the risk 
and never giving up on that. So it's basically getting back to the core fundamentals that we should have been dealing with 30 odd years ago of you know managing our users, managing our network zone segmentation, managing critical applications in our environment, all of these pieces mm -hmm. that honestly we should have been doing all along, but yeah. somewhere along the lines we sort of lost it, mm -hmm. uh, the focus that is, and moved towards you know how can we do things bigger, better, faster. And unfortunately, the bigger, better, faster fails came with it. I think perhaps one limiting factor is the fact that you know there's a re resource constraint, right? And there's a very much about resource allocation, prioritization. And on this point, I'd like to ask your opinion, right? And you have a hacker back background, or rather I say you like to break things, right? Yeah. Um, and we all have sort of this uh, perception that, oh, you know, being a ha hacker is glamorous because you have high, higher levels of intelligence, right? You can think creatively, right? But <laughs> I see that you, you don't quite agree. But I'd like to ask your opinion about, you know, looking at the cybersecurity, you know, sort of skills um, today, right? Mm. Uh, um, what kind of skills do you think that we need um, to you know, in, in this field, because uh, it's very much a sort of a big challenge. It is. And, and, I, years. <laughs> it will, and it will continue to be that way for quite some time because, you know, just because we have opposable thumbs doesn't mean we've really progressed too far in that case. Um, I agree completely on the creative aspect, but <laughs> right, okay. from the hacker perspective, it's all about, you know, being basically stubborn. You know, if, if you are trying to find a problem or find a solution to a problem or find a way to get into a system, being persistent, being, you know, finding new and exciting ways to do it. Uh, it's not that glamorous. I, I can. I used to do pen tests, and it's not as. It's not like the movies or television <laughs> will allude to. Uh, it's never that much fun. But when you do get that one moment where you break into a system, it is quite a glorious feeling. Uh, unfortunately, those are not as many as you'd like them to be. Um, so, what do we need within the field? We need to have uh, more adults at the table, if that makes sense. Uh, there has to be a greater level of maturity. So cybersecurity in general, we have always been like that dog running down the laneway chasing a car. And we finally caught the bumper of that car and now we have to figure out what to do with it. So we have, as a industry vertical for want of a better term, have gotten to that point. Now we are now seen as more of a significant player at the table with you know, senior management and the likes. And we have to make sure that we do the best with that opportunity that has been presented to us. Over the course of the pandemic, a lot of security practitioners learned very quickly that we were there to advocate for the users to do their uh, work in a safe and secure manner. And we went from on-prem to everybody being remote for yeah. a period of time. We had to shift and also enable the users to feel like they are still part of an organization. Mm -hmm. uh, that was no small uh, tightrope to walk. And thankfully, in many cases, I've heard lots of success stories mm -hmm. and they seem to outstrip the negative ones which is is fantastic so as security practitioners we need to have more of a maturity going forward we have to get away from the sensationalization of the hacker culture yeah um like okay. i i always seen myself as a hacker i've always been dabbling in it well nowadays i dabble in it, it used to be con concentrated in it um we have to look at ways that we can expand beyond that because Hacking is only this much of a cybersecurity realm. Mm. There is, you know, policy. There is compliance. There is architecture. There, all these different aspects. Right. So there really is no shortage of opportunity for people to get into this field, mm -hmm. and to, we really have to dissuade people of the myopic idea that it's strictly the hacker subculture. 
Like I, I love the hacker subculture, warts and all, mm -hmm. but it is only a small piece of the greater pie. Right, yes. Um, I think uh, when it comes to, for example, intelligence sharing, threat intelligence mm -hmm. sharing, there's also a lot of discussion around, you know, it's, it's not just the technical aspects, but there's a lot of the polit political aspects to mm -hmm. intelligence sharing as well when it comes to cybersecurity. Yep. Right. Um, so one last question. Um, I know that you say that we tend to talk too much about the cyber threat landscape, but I have to ask you about the cyber threat landscape because this is a cybersecurity sort of podcast, right? Fair enough. Okay. So looking at your, you know, the title of your talk, uh, Meteors, you, you reference Meteors, and mm. if I use that as a metaphor, so are we saying that the threat landscape is looking like a meteor and not quite as an asteroid type landscape? Oh, okay. No, so for me, it was a case of we tend to get focused on the big things, right? Mm -hmm. We t tend to lose our focus collectively on, like, the ASN1 vulnerability that led to WannaCry. Mm -hmm. um, that was something that was known for 10 years, and we lost our focus collectively mm -hmm. and didn't get that fixed, and it came back to haunt us. So that was a security debt that, you know, manifested as a serious problem okay. later on. Um, we want to make sure that we are, you know, finding a way forward that will obviate the ability for things like that to be mm -hmm. able to happen. Okay. Um, yeah. Right, okay. Well, I still will persist in my question. Sorry, guys, go Predictions ahead. Predictions for 2022. Oh. <laughs> it's I, not quite a stock market prediction, but a prediction nevertheless. Uh, <laughs> prediction, things will go wrong, and things will get fixed. Um, I actually have uh, typically eschewed um, predictions overall. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote an article for some publication, which is escaping me now, where I listed out the top 10 vulnerabilities that we had to be concerned about. Mm. Um, of those top 10, nine were still legitimate vulnerabilities. Okay. This was a list that was published 10 years earlier. I did a copy paste and made a prediction. Not quite a good piece of news. Exactly. And it was really disconcerting to see that nine of the 10 were still uh, pressing issues mm -hmm. at that time. So we do tend to you know, lose focus. And uh, going back to what you were saying earlier, a lot of that is because of the resource allocation that simply mm -hmm. isn't there. We need far more you know, hands-on keyboards in this industry than we currently have. And I see all sorts of you know, educational programs at you know, universities here in Singapore mm -hmm. and UK and Canada that are spinning up and we're seeing more students that are coming down the pipe. But there is going to be a longer ramp period for them to get up to speed because when I started, it was literally you could do everything. And nowadays, there's so much complexity that mm. you end up focusing on individual elements of it. Um, and that's not to dissuade anyone. I, I think that the, the Herculean challenge that's available any, for anyone who's willing to take up the challenge mm. is that security has no limiting factor in that you can choose your own adventure. So what you're saying is that the security landscape that we're going to be seeing uh, is not going to get any less complex. No, no. I think that's going to continue on for the foreseeable future. And that's not a doom and gloom scenario. That is just because we have gone to cloud computing platforms around the world. We're able to do things very quickly. Uh, when we're doing with like DevOps, we're doing code production very quickly so that when things happen, they're going to happen in a very quick manner. Mm -hmm. And it's going to have, in some cases, a staggering impact. So I think that we will keep making these same mistakes for a while. And that's only because we are at that juncture where we have to figure out how we are going to mature mm -hmm. as an industry and be able to handle these risks in a coherent fashion. Right, okay. Um, one of the first points that you raised uh, as we started this uh, conversation was about you know, how some 
many of the cyber threats that we see are about money. Yes. Mo right, monetary reasons. And if I look at you know, what has happened in the last sort of couple of years during the uh, pandemic times, and there was also quite a lot of takedowns of all these uh, dark net websites, mm. right? That um, uh, allow some of these uh, ransom as a service kind of services out there and um, allow the uh, per people to buy malware and therefore could spread a lot of these uh, cyber attacks that we cyber threats that we see but with all these takedowns uh, there's possibly an argument that the criminal cyber criminal aspect and the monetization aspect is going to be reduced but I think that is probably a different conversation for another day but that's just a thought that I have been thinking about um, one of the most yeah, one of, the, one of the most significant impacts to the criminal element in that regard has been the devaluation of Bitcoin and other currencies That's like right. that. Uh, so that has really curtailed a lot of their ability to cause a lot of t trouble. Um, that may come back. That may not. Mm. I don't. I can't foresee the future. Uh, in a lot of cases, I would put little to no stock in these cryptocurrencies, mm. uh, as was played out over the last year. Um, it. it if it comes back, we will see a definite rise mm -hmm. in attacks that are financially motivated for sure. Okay. When we when we jump back to 1989, look at the first iteration of ransomware. Um, the uh, was put out by Dr. Joseph Pop. It was literally you had to send a self-addressed stamped envelope uh, with a check to a mailbox in Panama. Um, I don't think we'll go back that far, mm -hmm. but um, if cryptocurrency does not recover, it'll be interesting to see how it will evolve from that point. Oh, that's an interesting yeah. thought. Yeah. So it, the financial motivation won't go away. It's just how are they going to get their money? Mm. Right. Thanks for that. Um, and thank you, Dave, for your time today. Thank, thank you very you for much. Having me.